try to chew those chips quietly. You know, I've never in 40, nearly 48 years, I've never had anybody put a bag bag of potato chips on the pulpit for me. I have had a road map several times, but never a bag of potato chips. I want you to understand something this morning. Names are important. Now, sometimes when we talk to people about the name of the church or the fact that in Acts chapter 11 the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch and it wasn't a hyphenated Christian, people say, well, you know, that doesn't really matter. There's nothing in a name. But I want to tell you something. If anyone in this audience, if you genuinely believe that there's nothing in a name, then out of the goodness of my heart, because I'm such a generous, kind person, I would like to give you a stack of pre-printed bank deposit slips for you to use any time you want to make a deposit. And they have my name on them, by the way. And all of a sudden, there's something in a name. I mean, let's face it. We name things. We have names for everything. You may not be aware of the fact that Norma loves cats. Norma is, she, she loves nothing more than her feline domesticus that she has at home. In fact, we have three cats that, that she has taken in. And all three of those cats that Norma loves so dearly have names. The youngest cat, the smallest cat, is named Squirmy. And if you ever try to hold Squirmy, you will understand why Squirmy is named Squirmy. And then there's another cat that is a very pretty calico cat. And so, being the original type people that we are, we named her Callie, which is short for calico. And then our oldest cat... Matt and I came up with the name for her. We call her Kitty Cat. We felt like that was very original. Some of you have cats or dogs at your house, and you have names for them. I've known people that had a special name for their old pickup truck or their favorite hunting rifle. I even heard the other day about a preacher that had a name for his bed. He named his bed the Word. That way if he decided to sleep in and it was 9.30 and one of the church members called and said, Preacher, what are you doing? He'd say, I'm just spending a little time in the Word and be truthful about it. Names are important. And the names of God are important. And one of the names of God is our Shepherd. And that's the basis of what I want us to think about this morning. As we look at the psalm that is sometimes referred to as the shepherd psalm. Now there are a lot of passages of scripture in the Bible that refer to God as our shepherd. 
One of those is Psalms chapter 78 and verse 52. And the psalmist there talks about God making His people to go forth like sheep. And God guiding His people in the wilderness like a flock of sheep. Another is Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 11. Where the prophet of God tells of a God who feeds his flock like a shepherd and gathers them in his arms and he gently leads them. And then there's Ezekiel 34 verses 11 and 12. God speaks there of searching and seeking out his sheep and delivering them from the danger as they've been scattered. But there's this beautiful passage in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For Thou art with me, Thy rod and Thy staff. They comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, there are a lot of books that have been written that this world could do without. A lot easier than this world could do without that little short psalm. Because those words in Psalm 23, since they were first written centuries ago, have dried many tears. And if you look at those words and you read those words and you carefully study those words, you realize that the words of Psalm 23, those words of the shepherd's psalm, are too intense to not have been the outcome of personal experience. And what do those words mean in the 21st century? Folks, I think the opening sentence of that psalm is just as true today as it was when it was written. The Lord is my shepherd. And I shall not want. Those are the words that give us the courage to face tomorrow. Those are the words that give us the strength to face the future. There have been young mothers whose souls were as pure as the driven snow who've rejoiced over the fact that they could sing, The Lord is my shepherd. And there have been sin-sick harlots in the gutter who have held on to those words as their only hope. Sheltered souls have sung those words in the peace and the quiet and tranquility of God's house on the Lord's day. And storm-tossed souls have sung those words as they were braving heartache on the sea of life. We cannot say with authority who wrote those words. 
describing God as the shepherd. For long centuries, those words have been credited to David, the shepherd king. And if David wrote them, and I'm sure that he did, those words were not written in the springtime of youth. Those words are words of someone who has lived much. Someone that's been beaten up a little bit by life. Someone that's thought much. Those are the words of someone that has greatly sinned and at the same time been greatly forgiven. Those are the words of someone who has reached the December of life, but he still has June in his heart. I want you to use your sanctified imagination this morning, and I want you by an eye of faith to go back to the city of Jerusalem. And I want you to see David as he sits there in the palace. And David sitting there in his palace in Jerusalem, and memory takes him by the hand and leads him into a far-off yesterday. And his thin white hair has suddenly become the flowing golden locks of his youth. And the roof of the palace lifts off and it overarches into a beautiful, clear, blue Syrian sky. He's got a scepter in his hand and it suddenly becomes a shepherd's crook. And he looks out over his court and he looks out over his subjects and they become a flock of sheep. And as he looks at his court and he looks at his subjects and he thinks of them as a flock of sheep and he thinks, oh my, how familiar this flock is to the shepherd king. He knows them. He knows every one of them by name. He knows their peculiarities. He knows their idiosyncrasy. And as David looks upon that scene, a new warmth comes to his face. A new tenderness comes to his heart. And he says to himself, I too have a shepherd. I have a shepherd who has loved me and a shepherd who has sought me in all of my wanderings. There is one whose gentleness has made me great. And he says, that one is God. The Lord is my shepherd. And because of that, he says, I shall not want. Do you realize what an amazing discovery it is that David has made? He dares to claim God as His very own. Notice He doesn't say the Lord is a shepherd. He says the Lord is my shepherd. You could say the Lord is a shepherd. But you can say the Lord is a shepherd and you can say it clinically. And without any kind of fire burning in your heart and soul. But you cannot say, the Lord is my shepherd, without getting a hand clasp out of life with that. Martin Luther, bless his heart, you know, that's a good expression. You can say anything you want to about somebody, as long as you add that. That poor boy, he's as dumb as a box of rocks. Bless his heart. 
Bless her heart, that dress sure does make her look a lot bigger than she really is. You just say anything you want to. Well, bless his heart, Martin Luther got a lot of things wrong, theologically speaking. But there was one thing Martin Luther got right. Because it was Martin Luther that said, the religion we experience is in the personal pronouns. He was right about that. The Lord is my shepherd. That's the religion we experience. It's in the personal pronoun that God belongs to me. He's my shepherd. It was Thomas Chalmers. I've told you this, but I'm going to tell you again. It was Thomas Chalmers, the great English preacher, that when he died and they were going through his effects, he had rewritten Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 talks about Jesus and it says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him and with His stripes we're healed. Well, Thomas Chalmers had taken his Bible and he had carefully marked through the plural pronouns in all of those and inserted the singular personal pronouns. And so when he would read that in his own personal Bible, it said, He was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement of my peace was upon him and with his stripes I have been healed. The religion we experience is in the personal pronouns. Everything has a whole different look to it when we can speak of it as our very own. Because that's, and that's why when we say the Lord is my shepherd, it takes on a special meaning. That's ownership. And now that David has claimed God is his very own, the very next sentence is the most logical you can ever think of. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. And in the epitome of common sense, as night follows day, He says, I shall not want. Why not, David? Because God's my shepherd. He's able to supply all of my needs and there's nobody else that can do that. Sooner or later, at some point, Grim want breaks down all the other defenses of our life and lays its torturing hand on us. Have you ever heard the expression, money talks? We've, we've heard that expression. Mine talks, it says bye. But the expression, money talks, is true and within, and within certain narrow limits. But... In the presence of the deepest needs of the heart and soul of mankind, money is as dumb as the frozen lips of death. All of our lives we've heard the expression, knowledge is power. But folks, if the only knowledge we've got is the knowledge of earthly things, then in the presence of the supreme needs of life and the supreme needs of the soul, earthly knowledge is as anemic 
as the 98-pound weakling that got sand kicked in his face to the beach that we used to see the ads on the back of comic books when we were kids. With nothing more than earthly knowledge, we're in a more desperate situation than the prodigal son was as he was standing by the hog trough in the far country. Love and friendship. Those are blessings in this life of unspeakable value. But they are inadequate to satisfy the deepest longings of the heart. There is only one way to satisfy the deepest longings and deepest needs of the heart, and that is to be able to sing with that great saint of old, The Lord is my shepherd, and therefore I shall not want. You see, with God as our shepherd, we will never be lacking for rest and refreshment. Because we find in God the satisfaction for all the hungers and thirsts of our souls. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. You see, the sheep, as the shepherd of the Palestinian hills and plains would guide his sheep, they would spend the early part of the morning grazing. And then they've got a stomach full of undigested grass, and the shepherd would take them to green pastures and let them lay down and they would lay down and they would chew their cud and digest that grass. The sheep would lay down in those green pastures because their hunger had been satisfied. And with their hunger satisfied, they feel safe and they feel secure because of the presence of the shepherd. The same good shepherd that met David's needs meets our needs. With perfect confidence, God asserts His ability to satisfy the longings of our soul. He tells us He's the bread of life and those that come to Him will never hunger. We're told that those who drink of the fountain of living water will never thirst again. The years ahead of us may possibly disappoint us in a thousand different ways. But we will never be disappointed in our quest for rest if the Lord is our shepherd. And we'll never be lacking for leadership or guidance. The psalmist said, He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. Continuing the analogy of the shepherd and the sheep. Sheep are a very timid animal. And they're very fearful of rushing waters. And if a sheep fell into rushing waters, that heavy wool coat would immediately become so saturated that the sheep would drown. So the loving shepherd who cared for his sheep would keep them away from rushing waters and would lead them beside still waters. That means that God goes before us into our unknown tomorrow. We've not passed this way before. No one has. But here's our consolation, folks. 
The way we're traveling is not new and it's not strange to the one who goes before us. I was listening to a song this morning. The God of the mountain is still God in the valley. The God of the day is the God of the night. Whatever tomorrow holds for us, God is there. He always goes before us. And not only is our God there, He gives us guidance. The psalmist declares, He leads me in the paths of righteousness. My, how limited our vision is. And how desperately we need the guidance of God as our Good Shepherd. How often are we standing at the forks of the road of life and we don't know which way to turn. But God leads us. And God guides us. And God goes before us. And with God, we have hope for restoration. He says, He restoreth my soul. There are two possible meanings for this word restore. First of all, it brings to mind bringing back the health and the strength of one who's sick. Our Good Shepherd claims emphatically to be able to cure the sin-sick soul. And all the saints of old, all of them testify to the truthfulness of this claim. In fact, we hear one of them say, Is there no bomb in Gilead? Is there no physician there? And he wants to know, Why is there torturing sickness when there could be buoyant health? Regardless of the deadliness of the disease from which I may have suffered yesterday. Regardless of the deadliness of what I may be suffering from today. There's healing for me. At the hands of the Good Shepherd. But then to restore could also mean to bring back that which was lost. To seek that which was lost and bring it back to the fold. And David is no doubt here speaking out of his own experience. He's thinking back to a black and tragic crisis in his own life. First there was adultery and then murder. Not in the heat of passion, but deliberate, cold-blooded murder. And even then, God didn't give up on him. God never stopped seeking him till he found him. And you know what that does? The fact that David was guilty and God did not stop seeking him till he found him. That gives hope to me. It ought to give hope to you too. Because after all of our defeats, after all of our failings, after all of our shortcomings, and after all of our missing the mark, through the power of God, we can still win. And with the Lord as our shepherd, We'll not want for companionship or comfort and sorrow. 
He leads us in green pastures. He leads us beside the still waters. But the entire journey of life is not among such lovely pastoral scenes as that. The road can change. And the road with great suddenness can change from green pastures to deep and dark valleys. We can be beside still waters and they can suddenly become raging rivers. But our shepherd does not forsake us in those desperate hours. Rather, he draws us closer. It's like an experience I remember several years ago. We were on a vacation up in Tennessee. And we took a train excursion out of Chattanooga. And that train went through, went into this tunnel. And that tunnel was dark. And the lights on the train weren't turned on. And there were no lights inside the tunnel. You couldn't, it was so dark, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. You couldn't see out the windows of that train. And then in just a moment, as suddenly as it had become pitch dark, we saw light again. That train brought us through the tunnel, through the darkness and back into the light. In that same way, when we pass through the dark tunnels of life, God takes us through. And God takes us to the light on the other side. God will not leave us in the dark valleys of life like the psalmist writes, I think it's a little later in Psalm 30. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. With God as our shepherd, we don't have to worry about where our home is going to be at the end of the journey. He says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Continuing the analogy of the Palestinian shepherd. Does the shepherd go home at night? And, well, it's about dark. I'm going to make my way home. And I'm going to leave the sheep out in the pasture to fend for themselves in the wilderness as best they can through the long night. No, he doesn't do that. Because it's when night comes that the danger is the greatest. It's when night comes that the sheep need the loving care of that shepherd the most. It's when night comes that as that loving shepherd makes his way toward home, he doesn't rest until all of his sheep are safely in the sheepfold. Can we expect anything less than that from the good shepherd that lays down his life for his sheep? Before Jesus went away, He called out to His disciples. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto Myself that where I am there you might be also. The Good Shepherd that laid down His life for His sheep will not love us and lead us throughout our pilgrimage only to forsake us 
at the end of the journey. He'll hold our hands. He'll hold our hands across the greedy and muddy ditch that we call the grave and take us home where we'll bask in the sunlight of God's redeeming love throughout all ages, world without end. Now here's the big question. Is Jesus your shepherd? Is Jesus Christ the Lord and Master of your life? You make Jesus Lord and Master of your life by believing on Him, turning your back on sin through repentance, confessing His name, and being buried in the waters of baptism. But then it doesn't stop there. You make Jesus Lord and Master of your life by living life His way. If Jesus Christ is not Lord and Master of all of your life today, He's not Lord and Master at all in your life. If you need to make changes for Jesus to be the Lord and Master of all of your life, now's the time to do it as we stand and while we sing.